Simple Beep, episode 25, The Works. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And on this episode, we are going to look back at what is affectionately known as the best-loved application for the Mac. And if you know what that is, you'll be excited already. Uh, otherwise, maybe you'll figure it out from the title, and we'll get into it in just a moment. But before we do, we have a little bit of follow-up, as we kind of expected that we would from our Easter eggs show. We listed many of our own favorite Easter eggs, but we knew that there would be some fun ones out there that we still missed, and we got a couple of old ones and a couple of new ones. First, let's share this Easter egg sent in to us by listener Matt Christensen, and it's an Easter egg affectionately titled Bruce the Wonder Yak. Bruce is, I assume, a 32 by 32 icon-sized drawing of a yak in earlier versions of Final Cut Pro before they were before the application was uh, rebuilt and re-released as Final Cut Pro X or Final Cut Pro 10. Yeah, this was the version that had a unique interface where there were a lot of the like dark controls with blue, bright blue highlights. Very early versions of this app, just right after it moved officially into Apple's portfolio of apps. The way the Easter egg works is if you are a video editor uh, deep into Final Cut Pro, probably at a long night of editing or rendering, and you leave the application uh, and just let it sit for a while, you'll get a little sprite of a patch of grass appear in the lower part of your screen, and then the sprite of Bruce the Wonder Yak will slowly walk out from the edge of the screen to the patch of the grass, start eating it. Uh, But if you come back and move your mouse or uh, type anything on the keyboard, Bruce the Wonder Yak will first get uh, really big bug eyes, and then he will flee the scene. This reminds me a lot of the talking moose, but (laughs) built into an actual serious app. Uh, We also have a video that we'll link up of someone activating Bruce. And it looks like another way that you could do it, uh, other than just going idle, was that there were some ways to trigger it deliberately. And it looks like there's an area in a toolbar or a tool palette, there's like basically a hidden one pixel region that if you do a contextual menu click on it, probably had to be control click at this time, no right mouse buttons. Um, if you did that, you could also summon the Wonder Yak. It sounds like a superhero. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> um, a couple of other Easter eggs sent into us that are modern Easter eggs uh, by a friend of the show, Phil Dokus. Phil has worked at Flickr for a while and uh, has a little bit of inside track on this one, um, which is that Flickr itself in the website has a secret about box Easter egg, just in the exact same tradition of the secret about box Easter eggs that were in the classic Mac OS. And like Brian said, uh, on last episode, you would have just different files, different folders, like all kinds of things just literated about your file system named Secret About Box, just on the off chance you might need it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Phil tells us that if you go to flickr.com slash upload, that's their standard web upload interface, um, you should try to upload a file with a certain name and uh, see what happens. Uh, another one he pointed out to us is uh, if you use the iOS app Swarm, 
which is the check-in app that got spun out of Foursquare, uh, much to my dismay. Um, I still use Swarm, but I, th- I think Foursquare was a better app. Um, in Swarm, they replaced the classic Foursquare badges with stickers that you can put on your check-ins. And if you go to the sticker list screen in Swarm, keep scrolling down and keep following the path, follow your nose, and you will uncover some hidden goodies, including those old dead badges. So thanks again for sending in those Easter eggs. If you have more, send them in. Maybe we can include them in a future show, or maybe uh, after some time has passed, we'll do another full Easter egg roundup if uh, people put together, hunt, hunt down enough of them to put into a show. Before we get into discussing the actual best-loved application for the Mac, let's take a brief detour and talk about the company, or rather, wholly-owned subsidiary (laughs) that uh, brought the majority of the versions of this application to life. And this is the company called Claris, C-L-A-R-I-S. Not to be confused with Claris, C-L-R-A-R-U-S, the dog cow, but they are related. Yeah, we'll get into that soon. Claris was a company spun out from Apple in 1987 with the idea of creating a more level playing field for third-party developers. When the Mac was released in 1984, it had some pretty hallmark applications like Mac Draw, Mac Paint, and Mac Write that uh, came from Apple itself to show just what the machine was capable of doing. But when the best applications in their respective fields come from the hardware vendor and software vendor itself, there's not a lot of room our developers felt like there wouldn't be a lot of room for them to compete. So Apple thought that by giving MacDraw, MacPaint, and MacWrite to this other company, Claris, which was intended to go public and be its own company, but that never happened, they would level the playing field out a little bit. Which is, it's very interesting to see how the times have changed on this one, because uh, I think we'll get to this maybe by the end of this episode, but I think anyone who's listening is pretty aware that there's in, it comes in cycles, but there's, you know, every couple of years, uh, Apple will announce some new software product or a uh, cost reduction of a software product that they have. And third-party developers feel like they're more and more getting edged out. And there are things like the operating system itself becoming free, uh, many of the pro apps that Apple develops now have come down drastically in price so that they're not really in that pro or business app cost tier. Think of things like we were mentioning Final Cut is, I think, less than $200. Um, many of the the pro apps from Apple are either going away like Aperture or are hovering around that $100 price point. Whereas the competitors were traditionally in multiple hundreds of dollars. Think of Adobe Photoshop and Premiere and the like that would typically be three or $400 for a single license. You'd be pushing uh, up to like $2,000 for the entire suite. And so there's this whole issue of first party versus third party software is still relevant. Claris didn't just stop with these uh, Mac Draw, Mac Write, Mac Paint applications. They also acquired or inherited some other software applications and worked on them, and then you know would release them under their own brand. 
Some of these you may have also heard of. There was the Claris Emailer, which was an email client for the Macintosh. I noticed you put the emphasis on emailer <laughs> to, to indicate their logo. Yeah, their product name was stylized with uh, E-M at sign I-L-E-R. Uh, Claris also had a software application called Homepage, which uh, if you've used Dreamweaver, is a very similar application. It's a WYSIWYG HTML editor. I think it was even in the days before CSS. Uh, Claris even took on the development of HyperCard after version 2.0 was released by Apple until around version 2.2. So in that middle time, there was a, a fun little detour in HyperCard where uh, they tried to make it a bigger player in the market by releasing a limited free version to kind of get people used to it without having to take the plunge into uh, the multi-hundred dollar full version. But there was a fun little Easter egg in there as well. Speaking of Easter eggs, um, if you've used HyperCard, you're probably aware of the, like the single line uh, command line that can appear separate from the HyperCard window. And if you typed the word magic into the supposedly free reduced functionality version of Claris's HyperCard, uh, you would get the full HyperCard for free, just like magic. Which I think is pretty much the only ever version of HyperCard that I used. And this is what prompted Claris to need to release the HyperCard player, which uh, you probably are also aware of if you used a Mac in the kind of early 90s, which was an actual like strictly reduced version of HyperCard that could only play the stacks. Claris also acquired FileMaker in 1988 and integrated uh, into their productivity suite in 1990. And FileMaker is what Claris the company would go on to be about. Yeah, so our focus today is on their main product for the Mac, which was ClarisWorks. Ta-da! <laughs> As we know, ClarisWorks is no longer uh, an active application and really only existed on the classic Mac. But the company didn't completely go away and their relationship with Apple didn't go away. So the company is now FileMaker Inc. and they are a wholly owned subsidiary of Apple. So their main product is FileMaker Pro and the FileMaker server backend for using FileMaker databases on the web and in web-based applications. And the fact of the matter is that FileMaker is still really going strong and definitely looks like a... It, it's very interesting. If you know the history of FileMaker um, and the fact that it's part of Apple, FileMaker looks very much like an Apple app and it also very much looks like FileMaker from 1988. <laughs> the, the core functionality of the app is it's a relational database and it does that really well. Um, FileMaker is currently at version 14, uh, version 12 came out a few years ago and was their big push towards significant modernization and had a new file format. I think the previous file format was the FileMaker 7 format, and that had a lot of uh, transition. It also made it uh, a native Intel app on OS X, which is a big transition that some apps don't survive, as we <laughs> see. <laughs> um but yeah, like I said, the general interface paradigm, I recently used FileMaker some at work, and uh, it's just so familiar. If you've ever been in 
uh, Claris Works database, you will immediately recognize many, many things in uh, in FileMaker, even to this day. They also had a consumer database app that they tried to uh, expand their portfolio because FileMaker is still one of those enterprise-level apps. And uh, even though it's owned by Apple because it's not under the Apple brand and it's not sold through the App Store, it's at a premium price. I think a single-user license is still over $300 for FileMaker Pro today. Uh, but they had a consumer offering called Bento, which was supposed to be like a bento box lunch that you would get in Japan. Everything would line up nicely and all your data would line up nicely and be very pretty for you. Um, it was a flat database, which is much less powerful than FileMaker. But on the other hand, not everyone needs a full-fledged relational database. But Bento didn't really find its audience. It was extremely template-based and... Uh, the overall lifespan of Bento was from 2008 to 2013 and ha- is no longer sold or in development by FileMaker. And some final trivia tidbits about Claris, the company Claris. As Ed mentioned, it is related to Claris, the dog cow, the beloved dog cow. Uh, as we'll get into in a little bit, the relationship between Claris and its parent company, Apple, was stressed at times. And uh, one of the engineers who kind of slipped Claris the dog cow into the Max page setup dialog decided to officially name the dog cow Claire Rus, a misspelling of Claris, the company, because as uh, he's quoted as saying in, in one thing we'll link to, I just had a small conflict with several of their employees and I wanted to poke fun <laughs> at them. So yeah, there was a little bit of... Uh... A little bit of infighting there. Another weird little tidbit about Claris Works, the app, is that if you remember in Classic Mac, every app had its creator code. And you this was an important piece of the file metadata that said when you double-clicked that file, it would open in that particular given app. And for some file types, this was important because you could actually switch the creator code and the file t- Type would stay the same. Uh, for example, if you had like a, a media file, you could open it in different applications, or a plain text file could open in different applications. ClarisWorks had a proprietary file format, so you weren't really just going to be able to switch something out and get it to open elsewhere. Uh, but the creator code for ClarisWorks was Bobo, B O B O, because there were these four letter, four alphanumeric uh, codes. And apparently this was some sort of in-joke with people who were developing Claris Works about a fictional character that they had created who went by the name of My Dog Bobo. (laughs) (laughs) So this gives you an idea of the environment in which this very serious productivity app was designed. Yeah. And so before we get into our main discussion today about the app itself, Claris Works, uh, we figured we would talk a little bit about the concept of works applications in general. Yeah, that's, I think that's an important distinction, is that today we often think of application suites, something like Microsoft Office or Adobe Creative Cloud, where there's a whole portfolio of different applications that a company makes, and they sell them in different bundles or configurations. And to various extents, they are interoperable and supposed to work 
happily with each other. But a works application is different in that it's a single application bundle. So imagine if you just had a single icon that said Microsoft Office and it was supposed to do everything. Um, or even today on the Apple side, if you just had a single app that was called iWork. Um, but that's not how we have things for the most part today. Uh, but in the early, well, late 80s and early 90s, when these applications were becoming popular, uh, the works model actually made a lot of sense. Yeah, as a single monolithic application, the total memory and resource footprint of a works application was traditionally lower than having to operate multiple productivity applications in an office-like suite. Yeah, and I was actually looking through one of my Claris Works manuals here, and the memory footprint was extremely small. Um, I think it said I, there was one place in the manual where it was giving explicit instructions about upping the memory requirement in the get info, get info window. Yeah. Yep. Um, for certain uses, uh, so there were certain capabilities where you could do basically high res bitmaps or high deep, uh, high DPI or high color depth bitmap art with Claris works. And they said, if you're going to do it, you better up the, uh, better up the amount of RAM used to either 2400 or 4800K. <laughs> A whopping 4800K. Right. You can't even like, breathe at a web browser <laughs> and have it use less than 4,800K. Um, so yeah, these were extremely efficient apps. And as we'll see, that was really part of the model for Claris Works in from its very beginning development. Another thing about this is that because it was treated like a single application, it could also be priced like a single application. And the notion was that Yes, maybe you could get a dedicated word processing app or a dedicated arts app, whether it's vector-based art or pixel-based art, and then you would pay a premium price for that. But with a works app, you were getting the core features of several different areas and priced as a single application. And the target for this was often education customers, whereas the target for those pro-level apps would be businesses. Um, so education customers could buy, could choose a works app and know that all of the different uses that they would have in a classroom setting would be covered and be interoperable. And they could buy a site license for a drastically reduced cost. Of course, this also made it popular for just home customers who also might not need the very advanced features of these more pro applications. And as we'll see, really, the works apps could cover quite a lot of ground. And even in some cases, they were promoted as handling cross-functional processes better. Microsoft offered its own works application in addition to having their popular Office suite. And in one example I found in my research, Microsoft claimed that mail merges were easier in works because it was the one application. It didn't have to talk to different applications and different processes. Uh, of course, when you're writing your email out to your multiple contacts in a word processor, but your list of their email addresses is in a database or a spreadsheet, those kinds of things Microsoft claimed were 
more reliable and easier in a works application than trying to juggle them throughout the different apps in Office. Another thing that they were good at is that before there was really robust uh, system-wide drag-and-drop support, is that within a works application, maybe you had a, a drawing document and a word processing document open at the same time. And if you had within-app drag-and-drop support, you could really easily and seamlessly work between those two different settings and have all the tools accessible. Uh, whereas, you know, today we probably take that for granted that, you know, you can just pop open, oh, you just pop open a PDF in preview and select the region that you want and just drag and drop it into any word processing document or even like Google Docs or something. And just everything is taken care of behind the scenes. But without that system-wide support, being within a single application could be useful and actually give more functionality. So now let's dive into it. The actual application, Clarisworks. But before we can actually talk about Clarisworks itself, we should talk a little bit about Appleworks. And I'm not talking about the Appleworks that you may have used in the late 90s and early 2000s on your Mac. The actual first incarnation of this Apple-owned works application was software called Appleworks, but it was made for the Apple II, not for the Macintosh. And in its initial form, it had just a word processor, a spreadsheet, and a database. It was first released in 1984, and by version 2.1 in 1988, it had been handed over from Apple proper to Claris. And still talking about this Apple II version, uh, because Claris started to work on software for the Mac, they handed it uh, the Apple II version over to another company called Quality Computers around 1993. And believe it or not, this company kept working on an Apple II software application until late 1995, when version 5.1 of this AppleWorks software was released. Kind of astounding. It is kind of astounding, although it doesn't surprise me. I mean, when we were in school at that point, there was still a lot of weight being put on uh, Apple II, teaching on Apple IIs and using Apple II software in the early 90s. And, of course, there was the sort of weird overlap between the Apple II and the Mac with the uh, Apple II GS, which had some Mac-like functionalities and... Backwards compatibility for the Apple II lasted really into the mid-90s, almost all the way to the time of the iMac. Basically, any of the, the be certain beige, beige box Macs had the ability to add an Apple II compatibility card that would basically let you... It's, it's almost like dual booting, but it's really just like switching which computer you're using within the same box. That's a really long length to go to to get that backwards compatibility. But again, it was popular with education because education markets had stocked up all of this software that was the core of their curriculum, and they didn't want to have to replace it all. So after AppleWorks for the Apple II came ClarisWorks for the Macintosh. And the program has a different name in part because they wanted to differentiate it from the still ongoing AppleWorks project for the Apple II. And it really was a brand new project. 
So it encompassed a lot more functionality, for one. It had six main functions. So there was word processor, vector drawing, bitmap paint capabilities, a spreadsheet, a database, and a communications document, which is basically a, a modem terminal window. So the program itself uh, has a very interesting history of just really two guys with a vision for an app that turned into one of the most popular Mac programs of all time. And by one count here, it says that it has had over 20 million active users at one point, which is pretty big. I mean, that seems big just for the Mac install base in general um, in the early to mid-90s. But I kind of believe it. When my family first got a Mac, we came in at the very beginning of the PowerPC era, and it was very simple. I, I mean, I was I was very young, so I don't recall the exact story, but it was basically that, oh, you're buying a Mac now. You want to be able to do productivity things on your Mac. You should absolutely have Clarisworks. Like it wasn't, you know, it didn't come pre-bundled, pre-installed or anything like that. But I remember uh, being in the CompUSA <laughs> and every single Mac there had Clarisworks on it. It was also, Clarisworks gave me my first introduction to uh, how applications work on the Mac instead of how they work on Windows. Not that I had ever used Windows at that point, um, but something that confused many Windows users for many years on the Mac is the fact that you can close all the windows of an application and the application stays open. And I remember that you know, we were seriously shopping for uh for our first Mac and made several visits to the store and it was like, well, Claris works is, you know, it's just a blank canvas. It's got paint tools. It'll be fun. You know, put your kid in front of that while <laughs> you figure out um, what's going on here. And so I would open up a document and, and totally mess it up with all the paint tools and no undo. And then you would say, okay, close that one. And then it was gone. Like, wait, um, okay. I know I, opened the application by double-clicking on it. So I go back and I find it and I double-click on it and nothing happens. Well, something happened, but it was very subtle and I hadn't noticed that the menu bar had changed. So this was um, after several patient uh, teachings by CompUSA employees, I learned uh, I learned how to make a new document. <laughs> we'll link to this essay called A Brief History of Clarisworks in our show notes. And it's told by one of the two main engineers who built it. So uh, we won't go into the full history here, just a quick overview. Uh, Ed mentioned the Apple IIGS and how it was kind of a, a midway point between the Apple II and the Macintosh. There was a company called Styleware that was making their own works application specifically for the IIGS line of machines. Uh, and they um, were acquired by Claris so that Claris could release this uh, application, and it was called AppleWorks GS. And that was in 1988. And then it sounds like there was a little bit of internal reorganization, and the two main guys, Scott Holdaway and Bob Hearn, left Claris in 89 to start their second company, Spartacus Software. And at this point, they decided they wanted to make a Macintosh works application to take on Microsoft's works application. And this story was really fascinating to me because it sounds like a much more modern Silicon Valley startup kind of story where two guys were working for 
larger company. They sold off a product and made a little bit of money out of it, had a little, you know, a little seed that they could go out on their own and basically create a startup looking to get their product and their talent acquired. And it seems just such like something that would happen today. But of course, they were going about it in a very different way with the tools that they had. But it was just a two-man shop. It sounded like they had two Macs. They basically moved into a house that became their office together. <laughs> um, and they took less than a year to write the first version. The thing that they really believed in that they thought was the major advantage of their way of writing a works-type application was this paradigm that they called frames. So instead of having several different document types and then just sort of gluing them together through some sort of intermediary, there really were only frames that could exist in different modes. So there was text frames and bitmap frames and vector frames and table frames that were the back end of the spreadsheets. And all of these would could possibly be in a single document together. And all you had to do to make a basic word processing document, your, your default word processing template was one big text frame. And your default paint bitmap uh, document was one big paint frame. But you could put any of the other frames inside, and they interoperated in predictable ways. And this allowed them to share a lot of code and make the application very efficient. Which, like we said, was a major factor in these works suites. So they thought that they really had the best technology of a works program at the time. Like you said, Brian, they were going up against Microsoft. They thought that Microsoft's solution to this kind of problem was not the optimal solution and that two guys and two Macs could uh, really take them on. And to a large extent, they did. Uh, they got together their basically alpha version of the software and started shopping around for buyers. Claris uh, was the first people that they talked to because they felt like they owed it to them to give them the, the first shot at it because uh, Claris had given them their start. Claris was kind of uncertain at first, and they went around to some other buyers, but all of that fell through. And in the end, they did wind up selling to Claris in July of 1990 and going... Like I said, they not just acquiring the software, but acquired the talent as well. And they went and worked there on future versions of ClarisWorks for at least a while. The big 1.0 release of ClarisWorks for the Macintosh was in October of 1991. Uh, and so if you've been listening, you'll note that that was over a year after Claris acquired Spartacus Software's works application. Which was supposedly basically done. <laughs> so you can already start to feel a little bit of a uh, tension there, probably a lot of bureaucracy. Uh, but ClarisWorks thrived. It was successful because it was efficient code and uh, working really well. And so they actually ported it to Windows. ClarisWorks became not just this multifunction application on a Mac, but it was a successful multifunction application on Windows whose files could talk cross-platform was a huge advantage. And so development continued. They had a, a 2.0 in 93 and then a big 3.0 in 1994. And this was the version both Ed and I used when we were kids on our early PowerPC Macintoshes. 
And it also sounds like this was the version that was finally feature complete to the vision that Holdaway and Hearn had from the very beginning. And to be honest, this is, we say that, you know, this is a small piece of software. It fits in so, such little RAM, but it's, it's one of these early, you know, early pieces of Mac software that's just so incredibly efficient. There is so much in here. Um, and like you said, Brian, we did a lot of our early computing in Clarisworks, and it was what taught us a ton of basic skills that we use to this day and things that are, I think the listeners will recognize in applications that they use to this day, um, whether they learned them from Clarisworks or not. So Clarisworks 3, when it launched, it had a, a new logo and icon, uh, and it was highlighting the multiple things that it could do. It was this logo of a toolbox uh, with <laughs> different tools bursting out of it. Um, to, and it indicated five of the six document types. Uh, so there was a folder for databases, ledger sheet for spreadsheets, a phone for the communications document, which is really front and center, even though that is definitely the last on the pecking order um, of the different document types. A pencil for drawing and a pen for painting. And this logo looks for everything like it was drawn in the paper app for iPad. That same kind of brush strokes and like sloppy watercolor fill in. Um, it was a pink icon uh, in version three. Um, and like I said, icon that I went to, it was almost just. In 1994, you sit down at, at a Mac and you want to do something while well, you go find Clarisworks, and that's your starting point. <laughs> the one thing that strikes me about this, so like I said, is extremely full-featured. So um, it's difficult to run Clarisworks today except under emulation, although I do have a copy of Clarisworks 3 running under emulation. I don't have 4 and we'll get into AppleWorks and the later things. AppleWorks, the the return, uh, later versions. Um, but I do, fortunately, uh, still have the manual for Clarisworks 3. So you know, we must have bought this in a large box uh, that came with probably, I don't know, three or four floppy disks that Clarisworks fit on. The manual for this is almost 500 pages. And it starts from zero. It presumes that you know almost nothing about interacting with any type of digital document, but not in a mean way. <laughs> um, it just starts you literally from zero. Like, this is what you're going to see when you first open up the application, and we're going to take you through everything you can do in every window, in every different type of document. Um, so the first thing that you were presented with was just that list of the different uh, types and word processing was the default. And this is just from the first page of the uh, of the working with text chapter. Uh, we'll put this screenshot in the show notes. It's just, it's everything you need in a word processor and it's so minimal. It's like you've got, um, you've got a ruler, you've got tabs, and then you have a toolbar that gives you spacing, alignment, columns, zoom, and split screen mode. And that is it. And frankly, it's, like I said, it's everything that you could possibly need because there's so much functionality hidden underneath that 
one of the things that like I don't even know for sure to this day um, if Word or Pages can do this. It had four different types of tabs, and the fourth type of tab was a decimal align tab, and you could customize it. You could say tab and align to a given character, and you could change what that character was. So just like incredible like detail, and you could fiddle with this and get it to do almost anything that you needed. Um, it also had more advanced features that you could add on as sort of extras to the word processing, uh, the word processing environment. Things like uh, a full dictionary. It came with a spell check dictionary. Um, thesaurus, uh, hyphen, automatic hyphenation, those sorts of things. Like getting into a little bit more, uh, more advanced territory, and of course, those were disk space intensive things at the time. You know, oh my gosh, a two megabyte thesaurus. Where am I going to put it? <laughs> and probably spread out across multiple floppies in the big box that you bought to install it from. Yep, they were like the extras disks that you probably just filed away in a little, little uh, bin. And, and never really touched. But yeah, Clarisworks word processing documents are um, where I've learned most of my keyboard shortcuts, I would imagine. Some of them, uh, which still haunt me to this day, I still have not gotten over the fact that Command-T does not remove oh, formatting yeah. from text. Uh, that was the most useful keyboard shortcut. If you had something that was bold and italic, or you had some text where a few words were bold and a few words were italic, you could just hit Command T and it would wipe it all out to plain Roman text. Whereas now you're like B I I no B no B I I <laughs> ah, <laughs> um, and I'll still do that and I'll get the fonts uh, picker come up in OS 10. It's been how many years? That one is just I'll never get over that. <laughs> Weren't those also the days where one of the font styles was outline? Like at the system level? Yep. Outline and shadow. Um, there are, in fact, examples of that in the manual. It says, this is what outline looks like. This is what shadow looks like. Yeah. One of the other things about the overall interface in Clarisworks is, so I, I mentioned that basic spare uh, word processing document. You could also turn on an optional sidebar toolbar. And this toolbar consisted of literally everything that you could use in basically all of the environments within Clarisworks. And it had, I think, 22 different tools, things that we're you know, very used to now, basic drawing tools like uh, polygons, arcs, um, selection tools like a marquee, uh, painting tools like a magic wand or a lasso um, or a paintbrush, the spray can, <laughs> which is a favorite. Um, but everything was contained in that toolbar and that toolbar didn't change, um, from environment to environment. And it meant that if you could master these 20 tools, you could master the entire capabilities of this very rich application. Like I said, there were drawing tools in there and there was a draw document, uh, format as well. It was, pro it was the number two choice in the document picker. Um, and these were actually, um, numbered one through six. And when you hit command N, you would get this picker for a new type of document. And if you wanted to, you could hit another shortcut command one through command six to get the type that you wanted. So uh, who knows how many times in my life I hit 
Command N, Command 2 to get a draw document because this was where pretty much anything graphical would go on. Um, I think that uh, you know these were vector-based drawings, and once you got into the habit of printing things out and you wanted them to look really good, you knew that you had to go for the vector-based tools. Um, it was extremely powerful for page layout, again, because it had the full word processor capabilities in text frames within draw documents. So you could create complex layouts with multiple columns or multiple text frames. You could even link the text frames together like a bona fide page layout app. Um, and if you typed, you know, down to the end of one frame, it would start, it would automatically flow the text into the next frame. Some really advanced features. Um, it had Bezier shape tools. Um, although I haven't had a chance to play with this recently. I don't know if I was just bad and didn't grok how Bezier curves worked at the time, but I also think that the Clarisworks implementation of it was a little bit janky. <laughs> um, because there are different um, mathematical models for different types of Bezier curves. And I think, ooh, I, I hope I have this right. I think the standard, like you'll find in Adobe Illustrator, is um, they're cubic Bezier curves. So it's based on a, a, cube, uh, a cubic polynomial function. Um, and that's how it figures out um, where to step the curve along in different places. Um, and of course, uh, applications like Illustrator have really powerful control over those handles that uh, that can alter the curve. You can bend the handles independently of each other. You can truncate the handles and all of these different uh, kinds of tools. Whereas, I don't know, maybe just in Clarisworks, I just didn't get how these the the math behind how these worked, but every time I tried to make a Bezier curve, it would just go off in a direction that I did not intend at all. Um, so I I rarely used those, but I did put together tons of different draw documents for various purposes. I know that my first ones, um, you know, just taking basic shapes, layering them on top of each other, uh, adding text, that kind of thing, adding gradients and uh, strokes and uh, faking shadows because there were no drop shadow effects or anything like that. You know, those were some of the first pieces of digital art that I put together. And one of the first things I did with them was make custom icons where I would create some sort of digital art at a large scale, you know, several inches uh, by several inches, and then just select all copy, go to the finder and paste it on an icon and hope that it looked not terrible. <laughs> I did the the exact same thing before I wanted to do like pixel by pixel uh, intricacies in ResEdit, and like like you were saying, Ed, you could use all the tools in whatever mode you were in. And I didn't understand the fundamental difference between drawing and painting, uh, being like vector versus bitmap and pixels. I just knew that when I was in drawing mode, I could like play with shapes and move them around. And then if I didn't like it, I could resize them, you know, or, or like mess with them and not have to like erase and start over because they weren't fully committed to being the bitmap pixels. Right. Or in a paint document, you could still select a shape with the marquee and it would snap around the whole shape and you could move it on top of something else. But then there's no multiple undo. So if you draw something else, whatever you covered, it's 
gone. Exactly, exactly. And I realized that like it was more forgiving to be doing this in the vector-based environment. So I would do like mostly paint relate like essentially bitmap and paint related stuff, but thinking I was in the drawing mode because it was it was easier for someone like me. Yeah, but I think it really was the more powerful mode uh in, in the application. I I think today we think of bitmap bitmap editing is more for photos. Whereas these were both sort of for art from scratch. But even I'll I'll put these uh screenshots in the show notes as well. Um, in the very first chapter of the manual, they just have example documents that uh, show off the their sort of semi-completed documents that show off the basic functionalities of each one. Um, there's a common theme. They're all about trees. Um, there's the, <laughs> the word processing document has a page of text about palm trees. Um, but then the draw document has this vector palm tree, which is very complex, like you would not be ashamed to create this vector palm tree in Illustrator today. Like, it looks good. Um, and then you turn the page, and there's this, <laughs> there's this tree on the next page um, where it's got bark, and all the bar- lines on the bark are drawn in an- you know, un-anti-aliased single you know, pencil strokes, and then the entire top of the tree is just spray can <laughs> and it looks awful. Like, like it looks like, you know, it looks like a child's drawing, whereas this vector art looks like a professional's drawing. Um, so I think the two modes really didn't compare in some ways. And the paint mode was just there because they needed a way to get at bitmap graphics because they were common enough from other sources. Um, obviously more or less before you would just go on the web and pull down a bitmap image, but, um, things like clip art repositories and, and the like, uh, would more or less have, I think, especially the more reasonably priced ones were all bitmap images. So you needed to be able to manipulate them back to the draw format. One interesting thing about, um, the file format that it used was that it was either based on or was just extremely similar to in the way that it could export. It was uh, based on the picked file format. So if you remember taking a screenshot on the classic Mac, you would get a .picked file. And that would, of course, contain bitmap data because it's a screenshot. But the picked file format was... I, I still don't fully understand it, but apparently it could contain both bitmap and vector data. And so uh, the Clarisworks draw documents were very compatible with uh, this multi-layer picked format, um, which, as it turned out, was also the file format for Avera levels. So if you remember the Ambrosia software game Avera, which was sort of like a MechWarrior-type game where you would be in these little um, bipedal uh, tanks called Hector's, um, and you would go around and try to blow other people up. Um, there were custom levels for this game, and it turns out that everything in those custom levels was specified by a top-down view plus metadata. So you could make a rectangle and say, 
okay, this is going to be a solid and it should be 10 feet tall. And it would make that a block. Or you would say, okay, this is a rectangle, but I want it to be a ramp. I want to start from zero feet and go up to 10 feet. And to do that, you would have the square. Then you would have an arc, like a semicircle arc, on the next layer up in the draw document, indicating the direction. And then the next layer up was a text box with all the metadata, like, um, if you shoot it, does it glow? What color? It, like, all this crazy stuff um, that you would put in there. Um, you could also place the power-ups on the map um, with different types of things. I remember going in and making custom Vera levels this way from scratch, which was just completely painstaking. Um, but you could do it in uh, Claris Works draw document. And that was when I really got good at uh, manipulating the order of objects within the document. So every, every object in a vector-based document has, you know, like, like Z order in CSS, there's a stacking to them. And that was actually like that had semantic power in this um, file format that was being used for these custom levels. Um, I think those are all lost to time, but I'll hunt around for them. Um, or at least see if there's some specifications for that up on the web. But yeah, way more powerful than the, uh, the little bitmap uh, drawings, especially since in the painting mode, uh, the stand, like I said, you could go to high color depth and high resolution if you were maxed out on the RAM. But the standard was 72 dpi, 256 colors, although it was a customizable color palette like the... Um, what is it? The CICN resources in, in ResEdit. You weren't stuck with the system color palette. So you could go in and edit every single color in the palette. And um, there's some screenshots of the color picker uh, in this manual too. It's weird. Um, it has the like millions of colors depth. So what is it? Um, it must be 16-bit. Uh, 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 <laughs> um but like on a normal color picker, you go from 0 to 255 for each of the RGB values. It went from 1 to 65,536 for each of the values. I don't know why they started at 1. <laughs> you could have very fine control over your colors if you really wanted to. Um, the one thing that I remember re doing in Clarisworks Paint that I actually showed off proudly to the entire world was that uh, as a, when I was growing up for, gee, over 20 years, I think, um, I made our designed and made our family's Christmas card every year. Um, and I think it was the year after we got the Mac, 94, um, I had been playing around in Clarisworks Paint and decided that I had enough artistic skills to do a digital Christmas card. And, you know, 94, this was kind of revolutionary. People weren't expecting it. Um, but it was basic pixel art. Um, I made some holiday-themed pixel. Uh, they were kind of icons. I mean, they were greater than 32 by 32, but they were basically icons, and I made a grid of them. There were, like, um, reindeer and Santas and candy canes, and I definitely still have that, so I'll, I'll put a picture of that in the show notes. My favorite cards by Ed that I ever got was a, 
uh, it was like a scene of a forest on fire and a little like wooden sign that says, welcome to Yulby. Yes. I, w- I was very bad at hearing lyrics. Still am to this day. That's so perfect. And then on the inside, it said, see the blazing Yulby forest. Yep. It was on fire. Yep. That's somewhere at my parents' house because I, I was like, oh, that's so smart. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing I ever spent actual time on in the paint mode was uh, I had those have a day smiley face posters, one for have a day and one for have a night. And uh, and I was totally into them, all the different smiley faces. And I was like, I'm going to make my own. And uh, and I did it in paint. So I think I had like greater control over the little minute expressions on the little smiley faces. Uh, and so I took a long time to do it. And I thought it, I thought it looked great. But uh, it was a full-blown poster with not just the smileys, but the little captions under it. And it was finished, and I felt so great. And I sent it to our color inkjet printer, which was also a big deal, and it took forever to print out. And then it printed out looking cruddy because it was a bitmap, and you could see all the chunky pixels uh, in the circle border around the smiley faces. And the anti-alias text. Exactly. And it was such a letdown. I... I thought, you know, because I'd been used to doing stuff in the in the draw mode, and I again, I did not understand the fundamental difference between vector and bitmap. So I, I have a very clear memory of like all this work amounting to something that I was pretty disappointed in. Yeah, you said it took a long time on on your printer. I remember that uh, paint was pretty snappy, actually. Um, where things bogged down was with the spreadsheets. I think you know, every once in a while for school, we would have to make a, a graph of some sort. Um, you know, you're putting together a report for something and you wanted to have a bar graph or a line graph. And in the spreadsheet mode of Clarisworks, it had really robust, customizable graphs. Um, I really wish that I could make graphs under this mode to this day. I feel like in things like iWork, it tries to do too much for me. And in things like Microsoft Office, it's just completely inscrutable. Like, it's hard to know like what level you're clicking at, like whether you're getting the whole frame or an axis or an individual label, like how do you drill down? How do you edit one thing as opposed to another thing? I found it very clean in, uh, in Claris works and you could really tweak them just the way that you wanted. And then, you know, if you had a color inkjet printer, it was going to come out looking great because in the spreadsheet mode, these graphs and charts were saved as vector because it's more economical for the file format and they're going to look great in a report or something. You know, you don't want to make a pie chart and then have all jaggies around the the circle. You want a true arcs in a circle. Problem was that whatever sort of vector language it used and whatever sort of vector language or rasterization thereof that our inkjet printer used were very different. And when you went to print one of these, it would just basically peg the CPU <laughs> to be able to translate it into what the printer could output. I remember the printer that we had. If you had a full page full of charts, it could take 20 to 30 minutes to print because it was receiving the data bit by bit and it would 
like make one inkjet sweep across and go zhunk, zhunk, and you know you could see the banding mm-hmm. and then it laid down only some of the colors and then you would wait <laughs> <laughs> zhunk, zhunk. <laughs> and then you would wait <laughs> so it had really great results um it was perfectly easy to use on screen um but it just wasn't compatible with that that printer <laughs> i need to clarify what i said about uh the painting mode taking a long time when I did it. You're right. It was only, it was more in the, the vector formats that like took a long time, but in my specific, I'm so proud of this artwork moment. I remember I specifically set the printer settings to like the highest quality. So it was just the printer taking its sweet old time. Oh yeah. You better print that 72 DPI bitmap at uh 600 by 600. <laughs> dpi on on your fancy printer just want to go back and shake young brian really what are you thinking (laughs) (laughs) it was all a learning experience it's true two more modes left in uh in claris this is the thing there's so much in here it's really uh it's really remarkable uh had the database um which i used uh to varying extent um although i learned enough to uh know that this is basically still FileMaker. <laughs> um, it's a flat database, like I said. That means that you don't have the relational capabilities of a FileMaker database. So in a relational database, you can have multiple tables of information, and then they um, can uh, basically have a field that links between the two of them, um, and they can uh, combine the information in different ways um, by doing that. So the ClarisWorks database was a little bit more uh, basic, but the things that it had that are still in FileMaker, calculation fields. So if you want to combine text, like maybe you have all of the different fields of an address, like you have a street field and a number field and a zip code field, then you could say, give me all of those combined together with certain punctuation in between to give me a full address on one line. Totally doable. Um, or you could have, like, if you're tracking orders, which is, you know, a common thing to do in a database, and you say, oh, they ordered three widgets at fif- and the cost of a widget is $15, then you could multiply that out in a separate calculation field. The thing that was great about having a database is that it turns out everybody needs a database. Sooner or later, everybody needs a database. And the problem is today, nobody has a database. <laughs> but ClarisWorks provided it. And I remember, I think I was actually putting together something where I was just cataloging information. And I was doing it in a spreadsheet because it's like, oh, look, this gives me a grid. There's table and I can just make columns and then I can put things in rows. And my mom's like, no, you're doing it wrong. You need a database. <laughs> um so that was how I learned databases was that, okay, this is information that needs to go in a database. Um, but no one has it anymore and they put everything in Excel, um, which causes trouble. Um, but it's the back to the ClarisWorks database, it's so like FileMaker. Calculation fields, m- this paradigm of multiple find requests, so you can make a complex find, uh, complex search by searching for one thing first and then making another search and then doing and or math between them. Um, the layout mechanism where you take your data and you can have multiple layouts um, is exactly the same. 
Um, even they have these different parts in the layout, like there's headers and footers and body, of course, like most people are used to. But if you're generating reports, there are these other areas where you can where you can put basically subtotals, and they're called subsummary by field, and they're still called that in FileMaker 14. Um, and there's one that goes just above the footer that's called grand summary, and it's still called grand summary. Like this has a legacy. <laughs> um, if there's one piece of Claris works that's really still living on to this day, it's the database portion in FileMaker Inc. and the FileMaker products. And if there's one piece of Claris works that's really not living on today, it's the communications document. <laughs> so this was, um, I, I looked through the manual on this and I don't even really understand this because I'll admit, um, you know, I, the time that I came to the Mac, the time that I came to the internet, uh, we went straight to AOL. And we mentioned that in our early internet show, at least what early internet meant to us. But the ClarisWorks communication document was for direct connections to things like BBSs and the like, where you would actually open up a modem session and dial a number and you would get a terminal-like interface. Um, I used it for one thing, which was that our local library system had a number that you could dial into and you would get uh, the command line interface, terminal interface for their library catalog. And spent hours and hours and hours uh, with that because it really felt like magic at the time that you could basically begin to do research from home uh, or find interesting books, it, fiction books that you wanted to read just by browsing and saying, request that for me. And you would walk into the library and you would have a stack of books that you had never seen, uh, but you could you know just walk off with them because you researched them and figured out that they were things that you wanted to read. I think my favorite time that I ever used this was it was in either fifth or sixth grade. And there was one Mac in the school library that had a Apple 2400 baud modem and ClarisWorks on it. And we were supposed to be working on bibliographies for a project that we were working on. And I had all of these books, I had all my sources and they were all from the public library, and they were all at home. And um, this was like, you know, what was I going to do? This was, I, I was not going to be able to work on this in class. I said, can I go down to the school library? They said, well, yeah, maybe you'll find some new books that you can use for your project. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, sure. So I went down, sat down at the Mac, um, I had the number for the catalog memorized, opened up ClarisWorks, dialed into the public library catalog, pulled up my library record where it showed me all the books that I had checked out. And I copied down, like I searched for them and copied down all the bibliographic information. And like 30 minutes later, I walked up to the class and went, I got it. <laughs> and it was like, it was like I had performed a magic trick. <laughs> that is magic. Yeah. The magic of the internet. I will admit, I never even touched this. Uh, like you, our family computer that had ClarisWorks uh, only connected to the internet through AOL. And then at that point, I think my dad may have even, quote, upgraded us to WordPerfect. And uh, and I, I was so beyond 
fiddling with uh, the drawing and painting method. So I, I don't even think I even went back into Claris Works once we had an internet connection. The idea of using the software to like open up a, a BBS or connect to a BBS makes sense to me. But the idea of it in a document model does not. It was extremely different. It, it was the only one that really didn't live in a frame. Obviously, you couldn't put a communications frame in a, another document. So it was the odd man out. Like you couldn't save, could you save like a, a bookmark to a certain number? Is that how it fit into that model? Yeah. So we had for the library catalog, you could um, you could save the connection settings, basically what number it would dial and what commands it would execute upon connecting. Got it. And you could say, wait to connect or auto connect. And then you would save that as a document and it would look for the world like any other Clarisworks document. Um, I think they had separate icons for the different types of document. And I think we made custom icons for the, for the library catalog, you know, like we put the library logo on it. Um, and that was just a document that lived in the root level of our hard disk because it was basically an application unto itself in some ways. It's a set of executions. Yeah. And you know, you would think like if you today, you might download an iOS app that's for your local library system and you just tap the icon and it, you know, it knows who you are. It logs you in. You can check your account status. You can renew a book. It was, you know, very much the same kind of functionality. Um, but yeah, it was definitely, that was a document, but it was really more like saved settings. Uh, but it used, it used the document model in terms of files and folders, but not the document model of frames that lived inside of Claris works. So maybe now is a good time to revisit those frames, which, uh, turned into an important inflection point in the history of Claris works. So like we said, from the very beginning, this frames model was the heart of the application. It was what gave it its efficiency and a lot of its power. The fact that you could have an overarching uh, environment that you were working in, but then you could also have all of the capabilities of the other environments in smaller pieces. Um, and like I said, for, for me, that was almost always start with draw document because it was the most powerful. You could still get uh, crisp text um, and you could put text anywhere that you wanted. Uh, you could put text anywhere that you wanted in a word processing document too. You could add text frames by holding option and drawing out a new text frame. But as anyone who's used text frames in any word processor, probably in the history of computing knows, the problem with those is activating them. Because no matter what you do, unless you get it just right, it's going to default to the background, which is also a text frame or a text area. And so you want to be working in, in the frame and uh, you wind up working in the main area of the document, typing in the wrong place. Whereas with draw document, the, the background was just emptiness. And so you couldn't wind up just accidentally typing in it. Um, but yeah, that frame model was the heart of Claris works. And once Claris was back with Apple, there were some conflicts about the future direction of the application because Apple was pushing the OpenDoc platform, which 
was supposed to work in much the same way, where applications wouldn't have their own proprietary file formats that was the only thing that they dealt in, but they would be able to save data in this open doc platform, and then other applications would be able to display or even manipulate that data through the open doc mechanism. So Clarisworks had this exact same kind of paradigm already in place with its frames, but a big rewrite was put underway to get it working within and then really replacing all of the frames with open doc frames and objects. Uh, so this was part of the 4.0 release cycle, um, which uh, came out in 1996. And I do remember that we updated from Clarisworks 3 to Clarisworks 4. There, there were some, some gains in features, and this architecture change uh, that was beginning was not noticeable at that time. Another byproduct of the 4.0 release cycle of Clarisworks was a version called Clarisworks for Kids, which had a simplified interface that kind of was like the launcher or a like tabbed interface of at ease that we've covered in previous episodes. And uh, similar to the idea that, that OpenDoc is like a document first hierarchy instead of an application hierarchy, uh, Clarisworks for Kids kind of worked in that way too, where it's like, I don't want to go into a drawing mode to do this. It's really like, what kind of drawing do I want to make? Do I want to make a pie chart or something? So you could actually start from a, from a template for one of those modes, and that's how it was simplified for kids. Thinking about this just kills me, because this is totally the paradigm that productivity apps for adults have gone to now. Just recently, I think... I think this was added to Google Docs recently, where there's a big template picker at the top, and I can't figure out how to turn it off. And it's like, would you like to make a papyrus resume, <laughs> or you know, like, or would you like to make a, a modern outline? It's like none of that. I just want blank. And with Clarisworks, the default was always, always blank. You entered an environment from scratch. And it treated you like you were smart enough to get what you wanted out of that. Um, whereas this other model, like it's great giving you know kids stepping stones to what you know what is your end goal, kid? It's not gonna be a complex report with a mail merge and charts and vector drawings. It's like you want to do one thing. But I feel like that same sort of especially the launchery aspects of it have come to basically every office app ever since is you just want to hit command N and get blank, whatever blank is start typing, start building slides, start typing numbers into a spreadsheet. But instead you're presented with which of these options would you like? And it's always the first option. Yeah. So that, that was started in the 4.0 cycle and then uh, continued into the 5.0 release cycle and uh, Apple slash Claris actually demoed a version of Clarisworks built on the open doc paradigm and not their proprietary initial frames paradigm at WWDC in 1996. And uh, a sad but true tidbit that uh, we learned from our 
short history of Claris Works is that uh, in the week after WWDC, Microsoft hired away the three core engineers that were working to bring Claris Works onto the OpenDoc platform. And that seemed to be like the straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, some engineers had left on their own volition before that. Others left after that big event happened. And development on Claris Works slowed significantly. Yeah, another big thing that was going on, of course, at this time was Apple's transition to next-generation operating system. And uh, while that looked to be Copeland and then macOS 8 and macOS 9, uh, that was really fine for Claris Works. And Claris Works 5.0 worked under those systems just very, very happily. Um, I don't think that my family ever owned Claris Works 5.0. I think I think we were kind of cautioned away because of the fact that it was going to this different model, that things were not quite the same, and that 4.0 was still working perfectly well on the classic Mac. Then the question was, when OS X came, what are we going to do? Well, of course, in the very beginning of OS X, the answer is simple. You either dual boot or you open up a classic environment and use Claris Works in classic. Works just fine, um, even though you have that weird uh, interface of, you know, you, you would switch to the app and all the windows and the, and the menu bar would change. And it wasn't pretty, but it still got the job done. Uh, the thing, though, that kept us going with our, at this point, almost a decade of Claris Works documents, like I said, pretty much everything that I had ever done for school was in a Claris Works document um, from third grade through high school. How are we going to, and things for my mom's business, um, all kinds of stuff that was very important to us. How are we going to carry on with this in an OS X world? Well, the answer was that after this slowdown and problems with the development of Claris Works 5.0, Apple officially bought back uh, Claris and the Claris Works product, and they made a push for version 6, which was a carbonized app that ran natively on OS X uh, on PowerPC uh, the PowerPC architecture. At this point, the name also switched back to AppleWorks. Uh, the logo got a little bit less whimsical um, and more utilitarian. Um, some other changes were uh, they realized that at this time in 2000, the BBS terminal communications document that's not really a document uh, was not very useful anymore, while the other five modes still were. And so they replaced it with a extremely bare-bones presentations mode. Because think, you know, 2000, by that time, PowerPoint was already dominant. Oh, absolutely. In terms of any kind of slide-based presentation, and was really seen as a necessity for proper productivity work. So AppleWorks would be seriously missing something if it didn't have some means of doing presentations. So there was a mode in there. I never used it. I felt like I could have made a better presentation in HyperCard, <laughs> to be honest. Um, 
it never felt fully baked. Um, but it seemed like something that needed to be there just for a marketing purpose to say that this was a full works application uh, still in 2000. Of course, the question of whether a works application at all was the right tool to have in 2000 is another issue. Right. As our computers are becoming more capable and they're more able to run the separate apps that can then become more specialized and full-featured, people were moving towards those. Uh, there was incremental development on Apple Works 6. I think the final version was 6.2.9, um, which was in 2004, I believe. Um, after that, there was no further development, um, but still worked fine in OS X. Uh, you could still create new documents, do everything that you needed to. I do recall, though, that you know, much of this underlying uh, code was just directly carbonized, um, didn't use any of the Cocoa APIs, uh, so it was really just ported to work under OS X, and this meant things like no anti-alias text, um, even in word processing documents. So once you were getting into into the maturity of OS X, uh, once you're getting to Tiger 10.4 uh, and beyond, and, and the interface has matured, everything has pretty much caught up with uh, the Aqua interface, and the Aqua interface has become refined and a little bit more subtle. AppleWorks is still sitting there with basically a classic interface um, with some Aqua trimming. Um, so it was obvious that it didn't quite fit in, and it was obvious the age of its code, even though that code was still really useful. I mean, you know, heck, if I could have Retina Claris Works 3 today, I'd probably still do half my work in it. <laughs> but the code base was not modern, and it was not being kept up to date. So it was a Carbon app. It was built for PowerPC code. And as we know, in uh, 2007 with the release of OS X Lion, Rosetta and that uh, sort of direct emulation of PowerPC code on Intel was abandoned. So as of Lion, AppleWorks and its predecessors no longer are able to be opened. And so comes to a close that chapter of the works. Before we end this episode, we do want to give a little bit of attention to some other players in the works suite that we've mentioned. Uh, first, Microsoft Works, which curiously has a similar origin story to Claris Works. And these guys were serious competitors. Yeah, serious Neck and neck. Yeah. As we talked about, Claris Works was pretty much a two-guy company who started by making Apple Works back then for the Apple II for the GS. Uh, similarly, Microsoft Works was actually started by two people, one of them an ex-Apple employee, who wanted to make a version of Apple Works for the Apple II for the Mac. Uh, but as fate would have it, Bill Gates and Microsoft's head of acquisitions, Alan Boyd, convinced them to license their software to Microsoft instead. So its first release was for DOS, but later came back to the Mac and Windows. Uh, Microsoft Works included a word processor, a spreadsheet, a database, a vector drawing app, but not a painting app, and a communications uh, like BBS access point. And eventually, 
uh, because it was bare bones so as not to cannibalize sales of their full-featured office applications. It didn't even have a dictionary or like calendar productivity access. These were built into uh, the works application eventually. Uh, so again, the the 1.0 was initially for DOS, later for the Mac in like the late 80s, 87. There, uh, they kept developing. There was a 2.0 and then a pretty big 3.0 in 1992. Yeah, and some controversy in 1992 because Microsoft decided to put right on the front of the box for Microsoft Works 3.0 the best-selling integrated application for the Macintosh, uh, which the Claris legal team did not really take kindly to <laughs> um, because, as we had said, they they said that at their peak, there were, what, 20 million active users of ClarisWorks, which is a lot. Yeah. And it turns out that ClarisWorks was getting bundled with certain Macs, um, probably with the Performas, I would guess. But even accounting for that, I think they said that their their standalone sales still beat Microsoft Works. Exactly. And so that was what Microsoft was was trying to count on, was that they were talking standalone retail sales, um, but they hadn't figured out that even if you took just that subsection of the ClarisWorks sales, it was actually more. So Claris, of course, related to, I'm not sure if they were directly backed by Apple in this legislation, but you know, Apple legal is not going to, not just going to let that go. Um, uh, Claris actually won the case and they were forced to remove the marketing from Microsoft Works 3.0. I think 3.0 or maybe 4.0 was probably the version that uh, I remember using in school for a few things. And, you know, it felt fine. It was it was spiritually similar. It was a works application. It more or less got the job done, um, although I didn't spend a whole lot of my time in it. Of course, around the same time as this was when uh, Microsoft had products like Word 5 for Mac, which, if you ask anybody who used it, said hands down, one of the best word processors of all time. Yep. Not something I can say of Word 2011 for Mac. Yeah, uh, so that was 3.0. And I, I agree with you. I think this that's the one I remember using in our computer school lab. Uh, they did do a 4.0 for the Mac. And development on Microsoft Works continued for a pretty long time, especially considering that in the 5.0 cycle, it stopped being the monolithic works application and was just kind of like a lesser featured version of office that they could sell it at uh, budget prices to educational systems or budget minded businesses. Uh, if you care, you can go to their product history page or even a Wikipedia page for Microsoft works and see that there are versions going all the way up to like windows XP uh, at, wow. at which point they're basically lesser functioning Word, Excel, PowerPoint, etc. I wonder if that was primarily like for international markets oh, or something. Possibly, yeah, that's a good point. But as we know, on on the Microsoft side, the the Works model did did not turn out to be their ultimate model, um, where they went to Office for everybody, uh, including you know even if you're a student or a consumer, trying to get it into your hands at whatever price you could be willing to part with <laughs> for it. Um, and you know, the functions that it settled on when you think of office today, it's 
Word, PowerPoint, Excel, and Outlook. And you probably only use Outlook if it's part of your business email communication and calendaring. But if you're maybe a student using Office, it's those three main functions. Word processing, spreadsheets, presentations. And the things that are missing are big holes. Um, no drawing and no database. So like I said earlier in the show, you know, people try to shoehorn databases into Excel spreadsheets and it, it looks bad. It's hard to actually sort the data or manipulate the data. It's not the best way of doing that. But then the thing that kills me is just no drawing capability at all. So most people, if you know, most people who are using Microsoft products for their main productivity, they just don't think that drawing capabilities on a computer are even really possible. Or an even worse thing is they say, I have an application that does that. It's PowerPoint. So I've even seen um, for things like poster presentations, like if you go to a conference and they have a poster session and you need to make a three, three foot by four foot poster or for people in the metric world, like an A0 or A1 size poster, like a big poster. Um, and people say, I, what, what am I going to make this in? Like, how does this even work? And they say, well, you open up PowerPoint and you make a one slide presentation and you go into the custom document settings and you set it to 36 inches by 48 inches and you go in there and you try to make this incredibly complex poster with charts and drawings and vectors and what photos and whatever you have on a single slide in PowerPoint. And it's just not built for that. Yep. I worked at the IT help desk for all four years of undergrad. And I would say one out of 10 things that people actually came to the help desk instead of like calling or emailing in for help with was this exact thing. Oh yeah. Grad students, they have to make poster presentations. Yep. Let's wrap up the show with what Apple is doing in this space currently. And of course, we you know we said it's works applications. Um, well, Apple has iWork, but as you'll notice, it's not iWorks. It's not a single application. It's the suite of applications that are still being updated to this day. Um, the interesting thing is the transition point, the overlap between Apple Works and iWork. So the first iWork app, you know, iWork as a suite didn't really come together all at once. iWork started with just Keynote, which was announced in January 2003 at Macworld San Francisco Keynote, uh, which got quite a bit of a laugh because it was the Keynote. And as you could recognize from the presentations that Apple gave in the years leading up to that, and certainly the years since, is that this was what they were using in-house to make the presentations that Steve Jobs and others were getting up on stage and delivering. And they decided, this is part of our core productivity. We should, you know, we should release this as an, as an application. But yeah, the, the people at the keynote really chuckled when he says, And it is called Keynote. Keynote is a presentation app for when your presentation really counts. <laughs> like this one. And man, I also forgot about the icon for Keynote 1.0. Uh, 
it's always been the podium. Mm-hmm. Uh, lectern, yes, lectern. Um, <laughs> and you know now it's very modern, sleek glass. The first one, not only was it wood, but it has this massive Corinthian column that's holding it up. I'd completely forgotten. Um, it was extremely ornate, and I don't even think it counts as skeuomorphic because it doesn't have anything to do with functionality. <laughs> <laughs> but it was very interesting. But Keynote was released, and everyone had seen these presentations that Apple was giving on stage, and they looked great, and they looked really professional, and it turned out that they had a very slick way of creating them that people were able to use on their own Macs, which is great. And it's like you said, when presentations were kind of grafted onto the final version of AppleWorks, that wasn't a, a rich, full-featured presentation software. No, and it was certainly not what Steve Jobs was using at Macworld. <laughs> and to that end, also, it seemed like, well, that was an afterthought. That was just to round out that software package. And this was clearly more of a pro-level standalone app. So you could think that perhaps AppleWorks would carry on either with or without that janky presentation part that they added on in the last version alongside of Keynote. Because, of course, what else from Apple was going to replace all of those other extremely useful modes in AppleWorks? Well, of course, the answer was the rest of the iWorks suite, um, which was announced two full years later in January of 05, which included uh, Pages and the new version of Keynote. Again, still kind of lacking. What are you going to do if you need to make a spreadsheet? Go buy Excel? Google Docs was not a thing at the time. So, you know, what space is this going to cover? Well, Numbers was finally added in August of 2007 in the iWork 08 package, and just in the nick of time for that uh, PowerPC to Intel transition and the dropping of Rosetta. And as we all know, uh, iWork, the iWork suite of applications has persisted to this day on the Mac. It was first released for iOS on just the iPad as actually part of the iPad's launch. The kind of the crux of the argument that it wasn't going to be just a tool for consumption, but a tool for creation. Look at all these rich, like desktop class applications that we're bringing to it. And then the iOS apps became universal in 2011. So you could have pages and keynote and uh, numbers on your iPhone. And uh, it even continued to the cloud. For a while, uh, there was iWork.com. So it wasn't even like tools within iCloud that we know them today, but it was a destination called iWork.com. The beta was announced in 2009, but it was kind of like read-only. You could comment on stuff, but you couldn't actually make changes to the, the documents. And they never got around to doing that. iWork.com closed in 2012. And uh, as we've known since WWDC in 2013, there are the iWork applications in iCloud. And uh, they just recently, as we record this, came out of beta. Uh, this is October 2015. So we've got full point releases of the iWork applications on the internet. And iWork has also gone through its own growing pains, including complete rewrites and total overhaul of the underlying file formats 
So this happened uh, in 2013 with the release of Keynote 6, Pages 5, and Numbers 3.0. And these, like I said, completely changed the file format that was used and eliminated a lot of backwards compatibility. So there was iWork 06 and iWork 08 uh, were, at that point, we were looking like we were on track for yearly or every couple of year releases. And then not much happened after iWork 09, which was a very small incremental change to the iWork suite. I know that I didn't update to iWork 09. I stuck with iWork 08 because it was paid upgrades back then. Uh, now it's free uh, because uh, Apple is not promoting uh, third-party development and competition by spinning off iWork into a separate company. <laughs> One of the other things with the release of Pages to go back when it first came out was everyone said, does it open AppleWorks documents, AppleWorks word processing documents? And the answer was, nope, not even a little bit. Um, because people figured that they would at least be able to import those documents and continue editing them in the new software. In fact, one feature of Clarisworks that we didn't mention a whole lot was its ability to import and export lots of file formats. So one of the things that was, uh, I believe, included along with 4.0 was this suite of MacLink Plus translators that could even get you from Word documents into Clarisworks. So this whole idea of interoperability was big in Clarisworks, but just out in iWork from the beginning. And then even within iWork itself, you know, same new versions of the same programs just could not open past file formats, except um, the most recent one, which is iWork 09. But I never used iWork 09. So I had all of these iWork 08 documents that were just sunk. I, I remember I had to like ask around on the internet and find a bootleg version of iWork 09 so that I would have three different versions of iWork on my Mac so I could open up the old documents into the new file format, save them irrevocably in the intermediate format, and then open them up in the latest versions, which was a giant mess until just this month, believe it or not, <laughs> Apple released uh, new point releases of the entire iWork suite that went along with that uh, the cloud-based version coming out of beta. And right there in the version notes, opens iWork 06 and 08 documents. Anything is possible. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe someday we'll even be able to crack open those Apple Works and or Clarisworks documents without having to go into an emulator. Maybe someday. Fingers crossed. So that brings us up to the current state of productivity and work and works apps on the Mac. I hope that you've enjoyed our look back at Clarisworks 3 if you never, ever, ever used Claris Works in your time on the Classic Mac, I do recommend... Uh, I was a little bit surprised, given that it's basically Apple's pr property at this point, um, that it is available on the Macintosh Garden, both versions 3 and 4. So if you can get uh, Basilisk or Sheepshaver up and running, you can actually go and uh, create some documents in Claris Works. You can go get out that spray can and... Uh, create some uh, beautiful pixel art. Tunnel into the your local library's BBS too. Why not? I have a, I have a feeling that that doesn't work anymore. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we'll uh, put links to that. Uh, like I said, lots of screenshots 
and we'll also put links to where you can actually get working copies of some of this software and uh, a lot of the history as well in our show notes, which you can access on our website, simplebeep.com. You can find uh, links to all of the past episodes at simplebeep.com slash episodes. You can also contact us on the website or you can find the show on Twitter. We are at simple underscore beep. And you can find each of us on Twitter as well. Maybe you want to send us some more of your favorite Easter eggs. Maybe you want to send us some really bad art that you made in Claris Works back in the day. We'd love to see it. Sure, why not? Vector or bitmap. You can find me on Twitter at ecormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. And I'm at bsuto, B-S-U-T-O. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.